From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Paul Yeknan is Tomlinson Professor of Shakespeare Studies at McGill University. His ideas about the social life of art were featured on the CBC Radio Ideas series, The Origins of the Modern Public. In 2009-2010, he served as President of the Shakespeare Association of America. Among his publications are the books, Stage Rights and the Culture of Playgoing in Early Modern England, with Anthony Dawson, editions of Richard II and The Tempest, and edited books such as Making Publics in Early Modern Europe and Forms of Association. For the past eight years, Paul Yaknin has been working on higher education practice and policy. He was lead author of the White Paper on the Future of the PhD in the Humanities. He led the project. Transforming Graduate Studies for the Future of Canada, which brought together 26 universities to consider ways of making the PhD better. Thank you, Olivier, for this invitation. Uh, it, it's, it's been really the last uh, day or so I've been thinking about it. Um, not whole cloth and not out of the blue because I've been thinking about these questions for several years. So I'm pulling together a number of things that I've been thinking about and trying to push them further than I pushed them in the past. And it's, it's a real pleasure actually to have a chance and a privilege to have a chance to talk about these ideas. And I have three topics uh, to bring forward to think about 2070, if we're still around what we did right. Um, the first is narrative, and the second is policy, and the third is solidarity. And um, I'm going to be mostly talking about literature. Um, and that's where I live, of course. I don't mean for one moment to slight other disciplines in the sciences, medicine, engineering, architecture, and so on. Uh, but it's good uh, and better for you if I talk about something that I know something about. Um, and I also will talk a little bit toward the end about graduate education, though it's in some ways implicit in everything that I have to say, uh, the kinds of emphases that we need to bring to graduate education, the way we need to change the programs so that they're a bit more outward looking than they have been uh, over the past 150 years or so. So my first topic is, uh, is narrative. And, and the idea that I want to bring to the table here is that we need new stories. Um, I was talking to a very dear friend of mine who's uh, around my age, and she's pining for grandchildren. Um, and she had a talk with her son. It was quite informal and quite loving. Uh, but he told her he's married. And he's a physician, and his wife is a physician also. And he told her that they had decided not to have children 
because the world would not be a fit place to live in 30 or 40 years. And it was the most distressing thing she said she had ever heard in her life. Um, so I think that one of the things that drives these kinds of decisions, and they are decisions we have to respect, of course, and she is respecting her son's decision, even though she is distressed by it, um, is because of the stories that come at us almost every day. Um, and they're stories about the climate emergency and what is coming toward us. Um, can I read you something from a wonderful book by David Wallace Wells? This is not a book of literature. Um, he's a long-form journalist who did a great deal of research on the climate emergency. And forgive me for this because it's not a happy paragraph. Uh, but I'm not going to give you a bunch of Harry, happy paragraphs today. This is what Wells, Wallace Wells says the world might be like in 80 years. In that world, eight degrees warmer, direct heat effects would be the least of it. The oceans would eventually swell 200 feet higher, flooding what are now two-thirds of the world's major cities. Hardly any land on the planet would be capable of efficiently producing any of the food we now eat. Forests would be roiled by roiling storms of fire and coasts would be punished by more and more intense hurricanes. Bear in mind, he wrote this several years ago and he was talking about 80 years from now. It sounds as if we're getting some of those effects right now. And, and the suffocating hood of tropical disease would reach northward to include enclosed parts of what we now call the Arctic. And of course, he's writing before the present pandemic. Probably about a third of the planet would be made unlivable by direct heat. And what are today literally unprecedented and intolerable droughts and heat waves would be the quotidian conditions of whatever human life was able to endure. That's one paragraph from the book. And I should say about Wallace Wells, he's a very fine uh, journalist, very fine researcher. And from time to time in his book, he says, don't despair. He doesn't despair. He says, oh, he has young children. Nevertheless, books like uh, his, uh, as well as many, many other books that are presently uh, on the shelves, on Amazon, coming at you, and every day when you read the New York Times or any of the most important publications that I know, you hear about the coming disaster. And the coming disaster is something we are not going to avoid, but what is even worse than the coming disaster is the particular sense of history that it brings forward. And the sense of history it brings forward is that history is over. And the climate emergency is the gravestone at the end of history. And we're living past the end in a kind of world that is not going anywhere, but down, down, down to nothingness. And I pick out just one wonderful book. I love Cormac McCarthy. He is one of the greatest writers of the 20th and 21st centuries. And his book, The Road, is a work of poetry. It is a work of despair in the most beautiful poetic language. And I'm going to read you two paragraphs, a paragraph from toward the end of the book uh, and a paragraph at the end of the book, the last paragraph in the book. The story, as you might remember, is about a father and son who um, are living in a world after something called an annihilation event. Uh, we don't know what happened. 
human history is over. Uh, human life has descended to despair and cannibalism. They are making their way across a, a destroyed landscape. Nature is, is dead. Um, everything is dirty. There is no food. There are no animals. Um, there's snow on the ground, but it's small bits of dirty snow, not like our snow, our wonderful snow. Here's a paragraph from, from toward the end of the book describing the world as it is now, uh, after this annihilation event. The road crossed a, a dried slough where pipes of ice stood out of the frozen mud like formations in a cave. The remains of an old fire by the side of the road. Beyond that, a long concrete causeway, a dead swamp, dead trees standing out of the gray water trailing gray and relic hag moss. The silky spills of ash along the curbing. He stood leaning on the gritty concrete rail. Perhaps in the world's destruction, it would be possible at last to see how it was made. Oceans, mountains, the ponderous counterspectacle of things ceasing to be, the sweeping waste, hydroptic and coldly secular, the silence. That's the world that McCarthy is imagining. The last paragraph in the book is a beautiful recollection of what the world once was and will never be again, and I'll read it to you. Once there were brook trout in the streams in the mountains. You could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were maps of the world in its becoming. Maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back, not to be made right again. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. So it's a very beautiful book, but it's a book of despair, the most beautifully written despair that I've ever seen. Because nothing makes sense. We don't know what happened. We don't know if anything was, was wrong, was done badly or with evil intent. Something happened and history is over. Now we need new stories. We need stories that tell the truth, but also do not cause us to lose our hearts and cause us to despair. And who better than literary people like us to find those survival narratives? And I've got one for you. It's a very famous poem in English, you might know, called Paradise Lost by John Milton. And it is certainly a brilliant survival narrative. And what happens, of course, because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God, is death comes into the world. And towards the end of the poem, um, the angel comes down and tells Adam the story of the future. And I want to tell you, the story that the angel tells is every bit as bad as the story that Cormac McCarthy tells. The planet is struck by death. The endless spectacle of suffering that unfolds before Adam's eyes is unbelievable. Oh, the first thing he sees are two young men. 
they're beautiful. And one man kills the other man. And Adam says to the angel, I've heard about death and now I see it. It's terrible. And the angel says, Adam, I've got something more to tell you that you won't like. Of course, what he has just seen is the future. His son Cain killing his son Abel. And that's the way human history goes. But the thing about the poem uh, is that Adam and Eve are not after the end of history, but they stand and they walk out of paradise at the very beginning of human history. And they carry with them on their backs the guilt for what they did and the, and the great weight that they have laid upon the generations to come, their children. So that their position at the end of the poem is very like our position now. I'm talking about people like me, not people like Rebecca or Upasana. People who have children and um, have participated in the desolation of the planet. So it's very important to take on board what Milton is saying. Something bad was done and we are paying the price for it and it is just. There's a moral sense to the world that we live in, but even more important than that, we're living still in history. The human race still has skin in the game and we will survive. Not to say that we will not suffer greatly, not to say that the suffering will, not, will be inequitably distributed across the globe, but that the human race will survive and the planet will survive even in the face of the disaster that we have brought on ourselves. Listen to how the poem ends, because it ends with a global emergence, climate emergency. High in front advanced the brandished sword of God. <clears throat> Before them blazed, fierce as a comet, which with torrid heat and vapor as the Libyan air a dust began to parch, the temperate climb. They looking back, all the eastern side beheld a paradise. So late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged in fiery arms. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence, their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. So Milton's poem, which gives us, tells us the truth about where we are, makes moral sense of where we are, also places back in history in ways that Cormac McCarthy does not do nor any of the stories we read in the New York Times or the Atlantic or the New Yorker uh, manages to do. So that's the first thing. We need new stories. And I think it's people like us, literary people, I mean, I don't mean to exclude people who are not literary scholars, um, can work to find. We did an, uh, we did an event last year uh, with students from Marianapolis College here in Montreal where they worked with graduate students after having seen a production of Aaron Shields' a wonderful dramatic adaptation of Milton's poem, which was playing at the Centaur with uh, the unbelievable Lucy Peacock as Satan. And they wrote their own survival narratives. 
So these are things that we can do together. Uh, and if we're able to produce these survival narratives and bring them forth from the literary canon, we can help people take heart and move forward in the world. That might be something that we will have done right. Two is policy. And, and what I'm thinking about here is, can we find visionary, unexpected, uh, new ways of thinking about policy in the literary work of the past? And here, I'm thinking about one of the strangest, most obscure plays in the English canon. It's a play called Time in a Bathens. You've never read it. You've never heard of it. It's crazy play. It's by Shakespeare and uh, Jill knows it. Uh, it's by Shakespeare and Thomas Middleton. And the story goes like this. Timon of Athens is like super, super, super rich. And he likes to show off how super, super, super rich he is. So he's always giving stuff away. And he gives jewels, he gives gold away, he gives cash away. Like if you're his friend, uh, one person says, if you want money, give him a dog. And he'll give you a uh, million dollars. So there's something kind of pathological about his generosity. There's something very show-offy. One of the things that he buys with his money is what he thinks is love. But of course, it is not love. And when he goes broke and he sends to his friends, in quotation marks, for a loan, they all say, oh, if you'd only asked sooner, I just out of money now. <laughs> Nobody sends him money. So he runs away from Athens, strips off his clothes, curses the city, and goes to live as a hermit in the woods. And he's digging for roots in the dirt, looking for something to eat, some root. And what he finds is a treasure of gold. He does, <laughs> he finds a treasure of gold and he starts to give it away to people. But again, without any generosity, he gives it to people who he asks to use the funds to kill everybody in Athens. He gives, it, he gives a tremendous amount of money to a soldier who's been banished from Athens, and he tells him, take this money, buy guns, buy tanks, buy bombs, kill everybody in Athens. He says, down to the dimpled babies. Uh, the man, Alcibiades, takes all this money and he forms a tremendous army and he goes to the gates of Athens and they say, please don't destroy us. And he says, I won't destroy you, but I'm going to use the threat of the sword to make sure that you obey the law and enforce the laws and even bring in new laws that will bring a peace and equality and equitable distribution of wealth to Athens. Okay, I'm gonna back up and tell you more about the play, but first I wanna tell you something. Karl Marx in his um, Economic and Philosophical um, uh, Manuscripts of 1844 loved the play and he thought about money. And you know, Marx thought a lot about money. I mean, he didn't love money. He was very, very brilliant about how money works and what money is. And he learned so much from Shakespeare and Middleton's play. So <clears throat> he said this, this is Karl Marx in writing in 1844, that which I um, 
that which I am unable to do as a man, I am able to do by means of money. Money, says Marx, thus turns each of these powers, my human powers, into something which, it, which in itself it is not. Turns it, that is, into its contrary. Money is the alienated ability of mankind. Marx is so brilliant, he understands the fetish nature of money, that money gives us power at the very same time that it alienates us from itself, from ourselves, transforms us into something not human. And even in these, in these uh, manuscripts, he writes about love. And he understands, as Shakespeare does in the play Timon of Athens, that money unmakes love and replaces human relations with monetary relations. So Timon thinks he's getting love for his money. And of course, he's getting no such thing. All he's seen is the reflection of his face framed in gold in the reflection of the people he thinks of as his friends and his brothers. And Mark says, assume man to be man and his relationship to the world to be a human one. Then you can exchange love only for love. Sometimes you, you forget Marx writes about all kinds of important things that human beings uh, value, not only about work and capital. You can exchange love only for love. If you love without evoking love in return, then your love is impotent. So Marx get a, gets a great deal from Shakespeare and Middleton's play about how money works. But here's the thing. Uh, he misses that money in the play is far worse than even he thinks money is. What, what Shakespeare and Middleton make clear is that money not only empowers us and alienates us at the same time, but it infects us. Money is a disease that passes serpent-like from person to person to person and is able to infect the whole of humankind and kill us. So the play tells us about exactly where we are now, where our love of money has created global injustice, but also has brought forth global disease because we would not stop bulldozing into nature. And we released from nature the things that have come back to hurt us and kill us. When Timon storms out of the city of Athens, realizing that money is a disease, he says, breath infect breath at their society as their friendship may be merely poison. Does that sound like the health warnings we're getting from our premier? He says to the soldier who comes to him for aid, go on, here's gold, go on be as a planetary plague when Jove will o'er some high-viced city hang his poison in the sick air. So money will in fact arm and fund a pandemic as it has done indeed in the 21st century for us. So money in the play Timon of Athens is even worse than Marx understood money to be, but he missed something Else. And I don't know if Marx missed these things or if he was just not concerned about this side of things. But money is actually a killer 
it might also be a healer. Flavius is, um, is time and steward. He takes care of the accounts and he takes care of the household. And he keeps trying to tell him that he's running out of resources and Timon simply won't listen. But after Timon has uh, left Athens, Flavius gathers all the servants around him and he has saved money from his salary over the years. And he says to them, nay, put out all your hands, not one word more. And he distributes the money he has saved among all the other servants. It is not now uh, this kind of weird, magical thing. Um, Marx actually called money a visible God, uh, leaning on how the money is represented in the play. It's simply the hand-to-hand sharing of funds that will allow people to purchase shelter and the food they need to eat. There's something else, and I've already alluded to it, that the play brings forward. When Alcibiades goes to Athens with his army and the, and the senators, they're such a corrupt bunch, you know. They remind me of a group of senators we've been reading about over the past months. They say, please don't kill us. Please don't destroy the city. We didn't do anything wrong. We didn't mean to banish you. And he says to them, standing in front of the walls, till now, you have gone on and filled the time with all licentious measure, making your wills the scope of justice. Till now myself and such as slept within the shadow of your power have breathed our sufferance vainly. Now the time is flush, when the marrow in the oppressed made strong cries of itself, no more. And so they led him into the city. They're still afraid he is going to kill them. And he says, I'm not going to kill you. Descend and open your uncharged ports to atone your fears with my more noble meaning. Not a man shall pass his quarter or offend the stream of regular justice in your city's bounds, but shall be rendered to your public laws at heaviest answer. He is going to follow the laws, and make sure that the force of law is respected. And that's how he's going to use the fear of his army funded by Timon's gold to change Athens and change the world he lives in. The last thing he says in the play, the last lines in the play, he says to them, bring me into your city and I will use the olive with my sword. Make war, breed peace, make peace stint war, make each prescribe to other as each other's leech. And the word leech, of course, means physician, means a healer. So he uses money and the force that money can buy to heal his society by um, enforcing the laws. Excuse me. Um, Imagine if we could derive some policy initiative from this strange play, Timon of Athens. Uh, Could we raise the money to create a transnational project that would in fact bring back respect for the force of law, existing laws that are on the books in all the nations of the world and in many of the constitutions in the world and also bring forward new laws. Just start like this. 
the Paris Climate Agreement, even those who have signed on to it are basically ignoring it. What if each nation that signed on to the, to the Paris Agreement, and maybe the United States will come in, we will see next week. What if each nation could put together a program that would enforce the law and in fact bring forth new laws that compelled the nations that have signed onto the agreement to obey their signatures on the agreement. Um, there's a group uh, called um, Eco Justice. They're headquartered in Vancouver. And uh, their motto is this, from coast to coast, they're Canadian, from coast to coast, we go to court and use the full force of the law to protect what we value most, the air we breathe, the water we drink, a safe climate. So, and I love the fact, Jill, that you found there's a great deal of disposable income out there. Uh, we just have to get our hands on it. Do we think that the billionaires might be willing to help fund this kind of transnational program of law enforcement and law creation, jurisgenerative program? That's policy. My third topic is solidarity. And it's solidarity across time, our sense of solidarity with the people of the past, because it's very important that we know that the things that we're going through now, even if the scale is different, are not otherwise different in kind from the trials that people have faced in the past. And I think that's very important for a number of reasons, because we need to have solidarity with the dead, but we also need to invoke them so as to remember that we are in history and that people will come after us. When I say, when I said at the beginning, we will survive, I don't mean to 2070. I didn't mean I will survive. Uh, mortality is a fact, a, a perfectly fine fact of human nature. Uh, when I say we will survive, I mean humankind will survive. So solidarity across time, I think is very important. And I also think we need to foster solidarity now, solidarity across nations, across cultures, across races, across languages. And here's where I wanna talk about, about graduate education. I think that one of the things that we need to do for humanities graduate education at the PhD level is to add in a requirement, a requirement. You cannot get a PhD unless you do this. I did a PhD on Thomas Middleton. I have supervised many people who have done PhDs on Shakespeare. I know thousands of people who have done PhDs on the public intellectuals and public artists of the Renaissance. Those people were all brilliant scholars, people like Shakespeare, people like Cervantes, people like Erasmus, people like Michel de Montaigne, all of them brilliant scholars, all of them also public intellectuals who were able to turn and face others outside the highly educated Latinate elite and speak truth to them. And I think this is something we must bring to graduate education and to, to our own practice as scholars. And here's some examples. I, and there are many, many examples. A book that I read a couple of weeks ago by the great American Shakespeare scholar, Stephen Greenblatt, is called Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics. And he's basically thinking with Shakespeare about where the United States is now and about the psychopathology of tyranny and especially of those people that we call the enablers who make tyranny possible. The tyrant cannot become a tyrant 
all by himself. And I say, I use him intentionally. He can only become a tyrant with a large crew of enablers. And there's a psychopathology that's involved in that. And Greenblatt brilliantly reads Shakespeare's play, Richard III, in order to get closer to an understanding and to share that understanding with people inside and mostly outside the academy. There's an extraordinary uh, undertaking in the United States, one of many, this is called Theater of War, Theater of War Productions. You can look them up online. And what they do, they're mostly theater artists, but they work with scholars also. They bring mostly plays of the great Greek tragedies, the great Greek tragedies to modern audiences, mostly to audiences of war veterans. So for example, um, they did a play recently called Antigone in Ferguson. After the killing uh, in Ferguson in the United States, uh, they brought Sophocles' play Antigone uh, in a translation produced by a Greek scholar, um, a scholar of, of Greek literature, uh, and put on by a group of brilliant actors. They don't do anything but sit at tables and read uh, the plays. And they get large audiences and they get them talking afterwards about things that matter. Uh, I mean, personally and, and, and collectively to people who are facing uh, real challenges and disasters in their lives. And my last example is from right here in Canada, uh, Randall Martin, who's at the University of New Brunswick, has a, a really extraordinary uh, project, international project, called Cymbeline Anthropocene, uh, about using Shakespeare's play Cymbeline to think about the climate emergency. And he works with scholars and artists in Georgia, that's not Georgia in the United States, but Georgia in the former USSR, in Australia, in Kazakhstan, in Wales, in, and uh, at a number of places in the United States and in Canada. Um, so there he's creating solidarity across time by bringing Shakespeare's play Cymbeline into conversation with the situation that we face now, just as the Theatre of Work project and Stephen Greenblatt's book is also bringing the past into conversation with the present. So we have some sense of solidarity with the people of the past. But um, Randall Martin's project is also creating solidarity now among these theater uh, artists and scholars in, in Australia, in Georgia, in Kazakhstan, in Wales, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, all of them working, performing, thinking together about how we can do a better job in the Anthropocene. So my, my final suggestion is that, as I've already mentioned, that we need to change the PhD so that anybody who does a PhD uh, also does as a requirement a public facing project that brings their learning to people who are not academics, not inside the academy, and that, and that creates a sense of solidarity either across time or solidarity now. And I want to suggest also, as part of this, because we're dreaming big picture now, and I think it's so important to be able to do that, that, and one of the things the pandemic has taught us is how easy it is to connect and to connect very substantially with people all over the world. I think that, that graduate students in Canada should be talking to graduate students all over the world and that the projects that they do that are public facing and bring their learning 
to people outside the academy can be co-authored, co-created with people in, in different language, ethnic, racial groups. Um, I know that's a big challenge, but it's something we can use the technology that we have to achieve. And if we're going to survive, and we are going to survive, and we want to do it as best as we can, we really need to build that kind of solidarity right across the whole race. That's what I have to say. And I'm really happy and delighted to have the privilege of saying it and very happy to, to talk to you now about any questions that you might have about, about these ideas. Wow, thank you, Bob. Oof, okay. So many, so many, many things. Uh, I have a couple of questions, but I'll let uh, our fellows, uh, Upasana, Adam, Bjor, Rebecca also, do you have anything you want to ask Paula? I might have something to ask. And if, if only um, just because I, I took a class on climate change and architecture, uh, in my very last semester. Uh, and it's probably the most interesting seminar that I've ever had. Uh, and it was very reading intensive. Um, I, and we did cover the road as just a theoretical premise. So I, I kind of related to that. Um, but of course, me relating to that implies that I, I'm also relating to all the readings I have done for that class. So my my question to you is, um, what kind of what kind of reading do you think the average uh, person engaging in today's uh, discussion on climate change and in at the PhD level whatsoever, um, what kind of information do those people need to have as a as a premise to just uh, engaging? That's or really having good. discourse. I guess I guess I I'd suggest Adam a kind of um, mixed reading list uh, that because you know I don't think that we should keep um, scientific um, truthful texts out of people's hands to make sure they stay cheerful. I think it's very important that we know what it is that that we're facing and what it is that we have brought forth. Um, but I think that we need to mix up that reading with the kind of reading that I'm suggesting, such as Paradise Lost um, and, and other survival narratives. And even as the students at Marianapolis did last year, they created their own survival narratives. And it, it's simply two requirements. One, that it tells the truth, and two, that it is it is imaginative enough not to break the heart of the reader. Think about what I'd add to the reading list. Um, but I certainly think Cymbeline would be on the list and I've written about Cymbeline and where we are now. I think a play like King Lear would be on the reading list because there's no world so smashed in canonical English literature uh, like the world that Shakespeare draws in King Lear. Um, so I think that the road could would have a run for its money against King Lear just for how bad things can get. Um, and yet King Lear also has some sense of being in history, which I think is so important to keep on the table, uh, especially I think, and this is just me, 
especially I think for young people. And I should say um, that when I started by talking about a dear friend of mine whose son said that he wasn't going to have children, that's true. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I can just jump in a little bit. Sure. Uh, this, um, this is a recurring theme of people. I mean, I'm 29 now and um, it, it, this seems to be so common this idea of, of not wanting to bring more children into the world right now. And um, a lot of what you said today resonates with me quite a bit, particularly in um, the power of acknowledging that this emotional sort of apocalyptical reality is age old <laughs> mm -hmm. and is there's, I think in some ways almost a, a, a lack of humility today in, or, or just, uh, a, a, a very one-sided understanding of, our situation is worse than it's ever been, um, which I don't think is the case. Mm -hmm. um, and art and poetry and literature call to our emotions and touch our emotions in a way that I think does create powerful links to the past. Um, and to feel that, you know, these feelings that we're, we're feeling so acutely right now have been expressed hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, um, is it allows for kind of an anchoring, a rooting yeah. Um, yeah. that brings us to the world and brings us to society and to others, I think, in a way that's very powerful. Um, because it's, it's, a, it's a real concern, I think, to all of us. I mean, I'm part of the staff here at Between the Line, and um, so many students come through these doors. Um, and, and I was just talking to a student earlier today, so many students go through, especially in the humanities today, um, in, in, in large discipline or large, um, faculties like international development studies or environment. Um, and the narrative is incredibly pessimistic, um, and very draining and very hopeless. Um, and that I, I, I also went to Marinopolis and, and so I'm very happy that there was a, that, that you were able to do that with students there. Um, but I think we need to be writing these kind of survivalist narratives mm -hmm. <laughs> ourselves uh, or incorporating that kind of thinking into our, into the education system right now, so. Yeah, I think that is such a smart thing that you said. And I think it's so important to think about the possibility of, of creating these survival narratives. And they, you know, we can do it in so many different ways. You also, you use the word anchoring, which is fabulous because the anchor is the, is the classical symbol of hope in Christian iconography. Um, and so the thing that anchors us in your telling is our relationship with the past. And uh, not only the suffering, but the, but the achievements of the past uh, and the sense that we're, we're not going through, this is not the first time this has happened. And, you know, just simply, it happened, you know, one of the things that all of the Shakespeareans have realized over the past uh, six months, seven months, is that he's writing about the plague all the time. Because 
his, in his time, the plague hit about every nine years. And uh, he, was, he was born, I think, just a couple of months after, or a couple of months before, uh, the plague killed one out of six people in his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon. And every time the plague hit London, of course, they closed the theaters, just like we're doing now. Uh, so he was without an income. Um, so it turns out, even when he doesn't seem to be writing about the plague, he's writing with such a strong sense of the experience of what it's like to not be able to touch other people, um, not be able to be close to other people, to be to see other people. And, and Time of Athens is filled with that because Middleton... And, and Shakespeare wrote it within a year or 18 months of a really bad plague that swept across England. And so that's, all of that plague language comes right out of their, their and their audience's experience. So I think, you know, it's not to say that the whole history of the human race has been one long disaster and scene of suffering, uh, but that that's part of it. And we can take heart because of that, uh, because we're still here. Upasana, that's an interesting comment. You want to pick up on this and maybe read the comment? Yeah, so actually I was, I mean, I was thinking when I was listening to today's talk that maybe the hopelessness that we feel today of the world is basically the fact that lack that we lack patience to, or patience or the patience basically to get over the feeling or get over to achieve things. Mm-hmm. So. Well, to me, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, um, I think one of the features of the survival narrative, certainly that the, the Marianapolis students did, is just what you're saying. That is, <clears throat> it makes you stronger. Um, it gives you some sense of um, the, the possibilities for the future and the care that we must take going forward. Um, so it's not just a matter of sheer survival. Uh, you know, if we use it right and we think through it right, uh, it, can, it can help us do things better. Paul, a question for you. Why do you sure. think we as public intellectuals have, as, as, as scholars, have pulled away from being public intellectuals and have you know, have been guilty of a lot of navel gazing in the last 50 years. Why do you think that is? It's, um, you know, the history is pretty familiar to us now about the example of the German research university uh, and the way the humanities struggled to get into that, that group and into that kind of space. Uh, and we've been doing that as, as you know, and as you've been pushing back against for a hundred years. Um, and that kind of drive towards doing specialized research um, that sets us apart and makes us like our brothers and sisters in the sciences, in medicine, it is uh, from on a day-to-day basis reinforced by the reward system. Um, you don't get a tenure track job uh, by publishing or doing public talks. Uh, You have to publish in academic presses and academic journals. These are good things, by the way. (laughs) There's nothing the matter with publishing in academic journals. Uh, They're wonderful. Um, You don't get 
tenure by doing public facing work, uh, you have to do academic work. And this is, any institution is going to create its own uh, protocols. And the university has done that. So we turned away from the world. You know, that's one of the things I, I'm trying to sort of turn people like Shakespeare and Montaigne and Erasmus and Cervantes from the objects of our study into our conversation partners and especially into our teachers. We can learn from them how to um, face the public and bring our learning to questions that people have now. So I think that um, it's, there's, it's institutionally driven. You can see where it got started. Uh, you can see this turning away. And the turning away from the broader world, of course, is something with a very long history. It's not something that started in the 19th century. Um, the great scholars of the Middle Ages um, had no time for people who didn't speak and read Latin. So Latinity was always something that set people apart. So it's, we've got a kind of heritage here, um, but there are also strong examples in the past that we can bring forward like Shakespeare. I don't think that I'm asking anybody doing a PhD to write a play like Hamlet. I'm just asking them to think how they could transform their knowledge, their questions into public facing work that would draw communities together, uh, communities from outside the university. And I think it's something that the universities, and I know that many universities, we talk about this, um, but it's very hard to build it into the reward structure and into the recruitment uh, ethos of the universities. And the recruitment even at the PhD level, so that when we're recruiting for PhD, new PhDs, we're looking for academic accomplishments. It's kind of interesting if they've done other stuff, but it's other stuff. So we need to broaden our horizons a little bit. Go, Jill. No, it's just, I've been thinking, if I took a great hymn by Isaac Watts, and just instead of the word God, inserted humanity, it would come out to almost what you've said to us, because I think it goes, Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Then it would summarize how you took us from the past to the future. And I'm just so grateful for having heard this, your, your discussion this afternoon. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Jill. And I'll tell you what, something I left out in Cormac McCarthy's novel, God, it, or the, a kind of ghostly vestige of the divine is there. Um, in the father, uh, the father dies, of course, before the end of the novel, in how the father talks to his son, and then the boy is taken, and there's this little glimmer, this little tiny glimmer of hope, and the boy is taken in by a woman and a man and their two sons. And she said, I don't remember the exact word, she says, and something about when the divine is spoken, it lives. So Cormac McCarthy is kind of going in the opposite direction from what you were suggesting we might go in. He's actually bringing some ghostly vestige of the divine into play uh, as a place that we could eke out something that feels like a home. Well, this was this was really powerful, uh, Paul. Really, thank you, thank you so much. You're uh, welcome. 
I really love the idea also of solidarity with the death and, and the dead and solidarity with the past and the future. It's something we really hear, right? Instead of, instead of saying, uh, you know, instead of feeling guilty about anything, there's solidarity. It's a much, power, much more powerful feeling, right? Of solidarity with the, the past, the dead, not only humanity, I guess, mm -hmm. but all of living things, right? Solidarity with, with, with <laughs> where we come from and where we're going, so... Well, thank you so much. Uh, we have uh, one last, uh, who wants to have the last word here? Let me just say that you just opened a, a whole other field of inquiry and thinking, solidarity with all living things. Um, so many people are thinking and acting uh, along the lines of that suggestion. I would also suggest uh, just an idea of instead of... Uh, what is it, survival narrative? I would suggest the thriving narratives. Mm -hmm. Right, so not just surviving, but how do we thrive? When we say we, again, this is all, all of live the living realm, right? How does the living realm thrive in the future? I think just, that, I mean, the word survival is a slightly vexatious word. I did a, a I just went and did a workshop with a group of, of medical students um, um, with Abe Fuchs. He teaches this brilliant group of students. And one of the students who's a practicing physician now, she said she hates the word survivor, like cancer survivor. Um, and she said, she told us the story that brought everyone to tears where she, her, her uncle was dying. And everyone said, oh, you're a survivor, you're a survivor. And he finally said, could you stop using that word? Um, it's terrible, it's, it's false, it's a falsehood. Um, it, it asks me to have far more courage and it, has me, it asks me to be willfully blind to the arc of my mortal life. So I think it's really interesting to, that we think about that phrase survivor, survival narrative as potentially a slightly vexatious uh, phrase. All right, thanks so much, Paul. You're very and, welcome, uh, it was, it was, it was a real privilege. For us too. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye.